Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Matt Kaler. Hey, well, uh, welcome to Tuesday Night Church, our second Tuesday Night Church of the year. This is fun, and uh, it's great to see all of you. My name's Matt, um, one of the pastors here, and uh, Pastor Nate is at a conference down in Southern California, and so uh, he's going to be with us next week to continue our study in the book of Genesis. So um, he let me choose the other book that we'd be going through. He just said, make sure it starts with a G. So I picked Galatians. Um, There it was. Just kidding. That wasn't a stipulation, but uh, it worked out. Worked out really nice. So we're going to be in Galatians. We're going to start our study in Galatians. And just so you know, we've got about 12 teachings that we're going to be doing over the course of this year in the book of Galatians. And so um, you're going to average probably once a month uh, getting uh, a teaching in Galatians. Although, I'll be back up here in two weeks, just the way it worked out on the calendar, so um, you will, uh, you'll have to bear with me in another two weeks. But I am excited tonight, and I believe the Lord wants to use this book powerfully in the life of our church and in our lives individually. So can we do this? I want to read the passage. It's a, it's a short passage. It's uh, going to be nine verses tonight, and then uh, I'll pray again just briefly for our time in the Word. Whoa, we're ready. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. All right, here we go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Once again, Lord, would you bless your word? Would you bless the time that we get to spend in this wonderful book, this letter to the Galatian church? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I still remember... um, the first time that we ever took home uh, the Nintendo Entertainment System, uh, this was back in the late 80s, and the Nintendo was the biggest, hottest item out, and me and my two older brothers saved our pennies, and we put together, I think it was about $107, just roughly, and uh, I remember going and purchasing this thing, bringing it home, and then not sleeping for like 36 hours, and we just started digging into this. I mean, it was revolutionary, right, um, this, this uh, video game system. And I remember pretty quickly there was kind of a hierarchy set up of abilities of how, you know, my brothers and I were, were um, competing in, in video games. You know, I was the youngest of my three, uh, the two older brothers and, and me. 
And my oldest brother, uh, Josh, one, uh, I have an older brother too, Aaron, but um, my second oldest brother, Josh, he quickly was becoming the best. And I think it's because he played more than any of us. But uh, you could tell, like, he had, he had the skills um, that me and my brother John didn't have. And, uh, and, and I just, you know, kind of went with it. And we would try, but Josh would, you know, he'd always win. And so I was drawn to these really obscure games. And I remember this one game in particular called Solomon's Key. No one's ever heard of it. And it was, it was this really cheesy game um, that you basically, there was like, a, I think, a thousand levels. It was one of those endless games and so complicated. But each level, you had to discover the key that would unlock the door. And then once you got the key, you unlocked the door, it would now go into a whole new level. It would get you to the next stage. And I remember just hours just playing this game, and my brothers would come in and be like, why are you playing this game? I'm like, I'm good at it. I don't know. I'm finding the key, and I'm unlocking the door. It's fun. Get out of here. You know, let me play my game. Um, but, you know, I think, I think it's often uh, the case in reading through letters, uh, books of the Bible, where I, I believe there's a key that if we can get that, if we can understand what the book is about, it's going to unlock the theme for us of really what the writer is trying to say, what he's trying to communicate. And the theme, the key, I would say, is found in Galatians 5, verse 1. Let me read that for you. You can put your eyes on it as well. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. The theme of the book of Galatians is one of freedom in Christ. It's also been known and referenced as the Magna Carta of spiritual freedom. This is a book that describes our spiritual freedom when we come into relationship with Jesus. And Paul is wanting the Galatian believers and now us to understand so much our freedom in Christ, a freedom from the bondage of a system of following simply rules and regulations or a bondage of uh, following laws and ordinances to now experiencing grace through faith. He's saying, stand firm in that. That is something that will bring you security. That is something that is a firm foundation. And friends, as we look at this book of Galatians, that's what we're gonna be studying. What does it mean for us to be a people who are free in Christ? What does it mean for us to experience freedom from the law? Well, it doesn't mean that we're free to lawlessness. As Paul's gonna describe, it's not saying, well, we're freed from sin in order to sin. No, Paul, with great nuance and precision, he's gonna dive into the relationship of our Christian freedom and what that looks like to actually live it out practically. When a Christian grows in their understanding of the freedom that, that is theirs in Christ, it produces a release, a moving away from dry, stale, rule-following types of religion. Because religion is not good news. Because often religion is what can you do to earn God's favor, to earn God's love. The gospel is good news. It's good news about what Jesus has done for you. And it invites you in. It says, 
This is now what you have as a result of what Christ has done, where often religion and a system of rules and regulations says, this is what you have to do in order to be accepted. So for the, for the early church in Galatia, Paul is going to tell them, you've been set free by the gospel of grace. Now live in that freedom. Because for many of them, they had known that they had been set free, but they were just failing to live in freedom. There was a group of um, Judaizers, if you will, these Jewish believers that were actually trying to tell the Gentile believers in Galatia that they needed to follow some of the laws and ordinances of Judaism. I'm going to do this. Awesome. Try this. Thanks, guys. Old school. No school like the old school. My voice sounds a lot more robust. It's getting a lot more like Nate. This is good. I'm growing. So their gospel, these Judaizers, this group of people that came in to try to sway the Gentile believers away from a gospel of grace, they were saying, Jesus is good. We love Jesus. Yes, he's important, but he's not enough. You need to follow some of the ceremonies, some of the rituals that, that we have in the Jewish system and belief. And so what you had is a group of people who were then being pulled back into bondage and slavery after having discovered the beauty and tasted of the goodness of freedom in Christ. And so Paul writes a letter, the master defender of the gospel, Paul. He writes a letter to convince these Galatian believers that all they need is faith in God's grace through Christ. Now, the letter's broken up in six chapters. It's 148 verses. It'd take you roughly 15 to 20 minutes to read. I encourage you to do that. You could do it in one sitting. And there are three approaches that Paul's going to lay out as he seeks to defend the true gospel and the freedom that results because of it. His first approach is going to be personal. In chapters 1 and 2, he's going to take kind of a personal approach to his defense of the gospel of grace. He's going to address the issue. He's going to talk about how he personally encountered God's grace on the road to Damascus. If you know Paul's story, you know what a revolutionary encounter that was. But he's also going to make the case that it didn't just come out of his mind, but this was given to him by divine authority and anointing. So chapters 1 and 2 are largely personal for Paul. Chapters 3 and 4 are going to be more doctrinal. Paul's going to actually present arguments um, to establish that sinners are saved by faith, and grace, not by works in law. He'll reference the Old Testament law. He'll reference Abraham, uh, Hagar, Sarai. He's going to reference these um, individuals in order to show, in, in Abraham's case, that, that salvation's always been by faith because Abraham trusted in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, right? So Paul's going to appeal to the Old Testament to show that this is not something that he's just come up with. And then lastly, chapters 5 and 6 that we'll look at, if the Lord tarries, uh, is practical. It's practical. Paul turns to the implications and the application of the gospel of grace. And the reason he does this is because there were some Judaizers that were accusing Paul of promoting a gospel of lawlessness, which is all, often going to happen if you preach grace. People are going to say, well, I don't know if you can do that. I don't know if you can do that because I think you're going to have a lot of people that take advantage of that. And people were saying that to Paul. People say that today. 
But Paul, he was addicted to grace. (laughs) In his writings, he mentions grace 100 times. He wrote half the New Testament. The other writers combined in the New Testament mentioned grace roughly 50 times. So you see, this was a theme of his life. He had experienced it. He had embraced it, and he had lived it out. And so Paul's going to address in the last couple chapters what it looks like to live by grace. It means liberty from sin. He shows that a Christian that continues to live in sin is not actually experiencing true freedom that Christ brings. And the gospel of grace is not one of law, but is not also one of lawlessness. It's freedom from the bondage of dry religion, but also freedom from the bondage of sin and idolatry. So Paul, the brilliant writer, the brilliant man, the brilliant defender of the gospel is going to lay this out for us over this year. So are you guys ready for that? Okay, me too. Let's jump in. We're going to look first in verse 1. We're introduced to our author. So I'm going to break this up into three different sections. Verse 1, we'll look at our author. Verse 2 through 5, we'll look at our audience. And then verse 6 through 9, we'll look at the agenda that Paul lays out in his writing. So verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul starts like most ancient letters in that day by identifying himself as the author. He gives himself this title, Apostle. This means one who is sent on a mission. Now, many of you know the apostles were those that were with Jesus in his earthly ministry for those three years. And once Jesus died and was buried and resurrected, before he ascended into heaven, he commissioned those disciples and sent them out to preach the good news, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That sending out is when these disciples really came came to be known as the apostles. And at this point, Paul is kind of bringing this up in a way, and notice the distinction that he makes. An apostle not from men, nor through man. In, in other letters, Paul does not give this kind of distinction when, when referencing his apostleship. So why does he do it here? Well, again, it has to do with those Judaizers, those Jewish believers who were calling into question Paul's gospel of grace. So how did they seek to undermine his message? By attacking the messenger. If they can't undermine his message of grace, they sought to attack the messenger and say, well, Paul is an apostle, but he's kind of like an apostle like small a. He's not an apostle like, like big A, like, you know, Peter, James, John. Like those guys, they were with Jesus. You know, Paul's great. He's got some of these different things that he believes, but they were seeking to undermine his message by undermining his apostleship. So the the claim was simple. Paul was not a part of the original group of apostles, so his doctrine does not have to be taken authoritatively. So what is Paul's defense? It's simple. My apostleship did not come from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. This is great. Paul just right out the gate says, here, I want you guys to know this. These aren't things that I just believe really strongly and I'm really passionate about and I just really need somebody to know and I didn't have anybody else to write to. And so you Galatian believers just were on my heart. Paul is serious. He is dead serious. And he starts by addressing something that he knows 
is going to be a question in their mind. Do we receive these words as authoritative? Now, we're going to dig into Paul's life more next week because he really kind of details his encounter with God, and we'll kind of dive into his testimony a little bit more. But quickly, for our purposes tonight, it's important to know that Paul's apostleship and its legitimacy is important because he was used by God to write more than two, uh, more than half the New Testament. In fact, we know that Paul is the most influential Christian who has ever lived, right? In Acts 9, we read about the life-changing encounter he had with God. He was known as Saul at that time, this persecutor of Christians, a Pharisee of Pharisees. On the road to Damascus, he has this really incredible encounter with God where he is blinded. God, Jesus, speaks to him, commissions him, calls him out. And at the same time, there's a calling, there's a vision to a man named Ananias that is given. God tells this follower of him, Ananias, to go in to see Paul and to pray for him. Ananias was a little scared. (laughs) He was a little fearful because he knew Saul's reputation. This is not a guy you want to be hanging out with. You sure you want me to lay my hands on him? Like, is that like, God, your way of saying you want me to kind of rough him up? Or is that like you're wanting me to pray for him? You know, which one are we talking about here? Obviously, God called Ananias to go and to confirm as an outside believer the work that God had begun in Paul's life. And this is what the Lord said to Ananias in Acts 9.15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. It was clear and it was evident that something radical had happened in in Paul and Saul. This former persecutor and enemy of Christianity was changed. He was changed and he was given a mission. He was given a mandate by God. After some time, Paul was then discipled. He was accepted as one of the apostles by the other apostles and then sent out on missionary journeys. So here we are. Paul's, he's not trying to throw his weight around when he says, you know, here I am, an apostle, not from men, but but from God. Instead, he's letting his reader know that my apostleship didn't originate with me, and it didn't come through man. It originated with God and came directly from him. So if you have a problem with it, take it up with him. (laughs) Okay, that's that's the the author. Let's look at verses 2 through 5 here. We'll check out our audience. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul tells us here who the audience is. It's the churches of Galatia. Paul was really one of the first missionary church planters In the ancient world, as we've discussed, he was sent to preach the gospel, and his ministry was largely to the Gentiles. That's a a non-Jewish person, and that's exactly what he did. On one of his missionary journeys, he planted churches in a region in an area known as Galatia. Now, we believe this to be modern-day Turkey. Notice that he's writing a letter to the churches, not just one church, and the reason is Galatia wasn't just a city. It was a region. Often, Paul would address his letters to a specific church. You think of the book of you know, Ephesians written to the, the church in Ephesus, the book of Philippians written to the church in Philippi, the book of Colossians written to the church in Colossae. But notice he's writing to a group of churches. Now, why is this significant? Well, because the, the letter of Galatians is largely 
kind of a refutation of the gospel. It's a, it's a defense of the true gospel. It's a little disturbing to know how far-reaching this false gospel had, had gone. It had reached this whole region, this whole area. And so Paul is addressing multiple churches. And I love this. He begins with his wonderful greeting to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his familiar greeting. He does this in all of his letters. And it was this that Martin Luther, that great reformer, said, these two words, grace and peace, in them, in them contain the whole of Christianity. Isn't that cool? You want to preach the gospel to somebody you don't know how? Grace and peace. <laughs> Just remember grace and peace. Because you never will experience the peace of God until you first receive the grace of God. Right? You can't access the peace of God. You can't have peace with God without having the grace of God. You can't get there on your own merit. You can't achieve it by doing enough good stuff. It's simply being received. These two words, grace and peace. Remember hearing a story of H.A. Uh, Ironside. He was a theologian, author, and pastor of Moody Church in Chicago in the mid to uh, early to mid 20th century. And it was noted that he was interrupted occasionally during his sermons with the objection that there were hundreds of religions and, and that no one could determine which was the right way. I'm thankful that you guys are a great audience and you're not doing that same thing here. Save that for Nate next week. But for me, hold those questions till after and Andrew will answer each one of them in detail. Ironside would, would answer by indicating that he knew of only two religions. He would say, one covers all who expect salvation by doing. The other, all who have been saved by something done. The whole question is very simple. Can you save yourself or must you be saved by another? I think this is why the gospel of grace can be so humbling. Because really, each of us has to admit that we couldn't save ourselves. No matter our record, no matter our achievements, no matter what we have attained in this world, it will never be enough to be forgiven, to be saved, and to have eternal life. Because the only way that that is possible is by someone else taking our place, someone who was perfect, someone who had never sinned, someone who was willing to lay down their life, and that someone was Jesus. You see, the gospel can be summed up in these two words, grace and peace. Because Jesus, John 1.14, what did they say of him? Full of grace, full of grace. And what did he say of himself? He's the prince of peace. He was the one that could usher in these two beautiful things for us to experience. So what does Paul do? He goes on in verse 4, and he says, Who have gave himself, or excuse me, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Those words, who gave himself for us, this is a way for Paul to start cluing his readers in to what he's going to be laying out. The gospel, the true gospel, the good news is good news of God's rescue plan for humanity. 
that was accomplished through his son Jesus, who willingly laid down his life for our sin. It's a salvation not earned or deserved by us. If it was, then we could feel really great about how we played a huge role in being saved. That would just really change our worship songs, wouldn't it? How deep the Father's love for us, which we fully deserved. You know, like, wait, no, that's not the gospel. It's about him. It's about Jesus. It's about what he has done, not what we can do to earn his love and favor. And what is the result of this laying down of Christ's life for us, the great exchange? He says, in order to deliver us from the present evil age. Paul's telling his audience that grace leads to freedom from the grip of sin, not a freedom to indulge in sin and live by the desires of the world. So why did God do this? Why did he do his saving work of redemption? Why did he set in motion this rescue plan? Well, we know it wasn't because of something we had done or because of something that we deserved What does Paul say there? Notice at the last middle part of verse 4, it was according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, the plan for us to be saved through Christ, this was according to the will of God. This was his plan, his purpose. I think sometimes just of the gospel, and I just meditate on it, and it's one of those stories that is just too grand for man to have come up with, in my opinion. I just think... There's this story that, that really plays into so many other stories, right? This, uh, and it was actually the writer J.R. Tolkien who, who wrote of this in an essay, and he called it the eucatastrophe. It's this idea that we have been hardwired to be so moved and impressed by stories of redemption that when we see those stories, there's something in us that just connects. There's something in us that is just moved, And the reason is because there's a bigger story, a greater narrative that we are actually a part of that is a true story. And so all these other stories of redemption, they point to a truer story, the grand story of how God came to rescue us and redeem us as people. And I believe that. And that's one of the fun things about actually being a parent because you can watch movies and shows and, you know, you can use all kinds of things to point out these stories of redemption and to see, you know, why is that so powerful to us? Well, remember, isn't that what Jesus did for us? Isn't that what what he accomplished for us? And that's the truer story. That's the better story that we get to live in today. We don't have to live vicariously through the actors on screen or, you know, we don't have to try and come up with these things in ourselves. And I love good story and a good film, but I love it because often it points us to the greater story. Tim Keller You may have heard of him. I've referenced him once or twice in a teaching. He says, we did not ask for rescue, but God in his grace planned what we didn't realize we needed. And Christ by his grace came to achieve the rescue we could have never achieved ourselves. This was God's will. This was his plan. And Paul just says, to the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. It's like, All right, there's the end. No, that's not the end. We've got, you know, six more chapters, basically. So what is he going to get into now? Well, now that he's laid out and established his authority as an author and an apostle and emphasized the grace of Jesus and his life, 
being offered for us to his audience. He's going to get into his main agenda for writing to these Galatian believers. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul's fired up here. Astonished, that word um, in another translation, it could be put this way, I am shocked that you have so quickly turned from God who chose you with his gift of undeserved grace and you have believed another message. Paul's letters mostly start, if you read any of his other epistles or his letters, they mostly start with a commendation for a church. I thank God for you. I praise God for you. Paul just kind of skips over that whole part. <laughs> I wonder if, you know, the, the believers in Galatia, they're just waiting. You know, what's Paul going to say about us? I heard what he said about the Thessalonians. It was really great. But he just gets right, he just gets right to the heart of the story. I am shocked that you have quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ. You know, I wonder if it's kind of similar, you know, because Paul had such, a, um, such an ownership and such a heart for these churches that he was a part of planting. You know, imagine sending your son or daughter off to college and you get word back after some time that they're flunking most of their classes and they actually aren't even showing up to class. You know, you'd be pretty disappointed. You'd probably be pretty angry if you were the one paying thousands and thousands of dollars for them to actually go to that college, right? That conversation wouldn't be, you know, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. It'd be, I'm disappointed and I'm angry. <laughs> and that's kind of what Paul's saying. I'm, I'm not just disappointed, I'm angry. I'm angry because you guys, you don't understand how important this is. Paul's passion and his uh, emotion, if you will, it, it shows how uncompromising the true gospel is to him and should be to us. He says, you're believing another message, another gospel, and this different gospel is leading you away from freedom of life in Christ because of his grace. You're deserting. You're moving away from the point of being closer to the one who bought you at such a high price. And then he goes on and he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He says, I, you know, I want to clarify. I'm not saying that there's like two gospels. There's one gospel, but this one, this is a distortion of the true gospel. And this gospel that the Judaizers were bringing, it was this idea that, again, Jesus plus something. You could have Jesus, but you need something else. For them, it was the rituals. It was circumcision, or it was taking part in, in, in certain ceremonies. And they were saying, yeah, you must do this in order to be saved. And Paul's saying, no, that is a distortion of the gospel of grace through faith. Um, the 90s were a good decade uh, for advertising. Yeah, for a lot of reasons. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> wow. Didn't expect that. The 90s, the 90s were a good decade in a lot of ways. Um, but I remember, like, as a teenager, there were a few commercials that just stuck in my mind. And it may have been because we'd often record shows and movies on TV, and you couldn't skip the commercials, right? So you recorded the commercials. And then when you watched those movies back as a family, you'd watch them with the commercials. And so some of the commercials really stuck in your mind. I remember the commercial for Diet Dr. Pepper. Do you guys remember that one? Remember when they laid out the new kind of advertising campaign? It was Diet Dr. Pepper. Tastes more like regular Dr. Pepper. You guys remember that? I don't know if any of you actually bought that line, but 
I remember going to the store and I think, like thinking like, wow, this is great. And I didn't really know much about diet, like regular. It, it wasn't really that important to me. But for some reason, I thought they figured it out. They like cracked the code. Like diet Dr. Pepper tastes more like regular Dr. Pepper. This is awesome. And I remember getting it and then um, trying it and being like, they have totally lied to me. Like this Okay, I, I guess maybe it tastes more like regular Dr. Pepper. That's like a very, you know, relative sentence. But, um, but I remember even like times my mom would go to the store and, you know, it was before um, the knowledge uh, of soda being just like terrible for you, I guess. I don't know. Maybe they did know, but my parents just didn't embrace it. And uh, she would go to the store and, and we'd like want her to get Dr. Pepper or Coke or whatever it was. And she'd bring back Dr. Pepper, but she'd get the wrong one because they kind of looked the same on the shelf. I think that was maybe one of their ploys too. And I remember that Diet Dr. Pepper just sitting in the fridge for so long because nobody wanted it. It was a distortion of the real thing. So that's, that's the illustration and that's what I'm getting at here basically is, I just remember being so disappointed and feeling like I, I, was, I was lied to. I, this, is, this is not good. And, you know, I think, I think what Paul says here, though, really is so true because there's just enough of the real thing. There's just enough Jesus. There's just enough Bible. But there's just enough man to make it a distortion of the gospel. And that is why it's subtle and it's dangerous. And that is why Paul comes out and he says, I'm astonished. I'm shocked. This is not good. This can't happen. And for us today, friends, I think it's important for us to understand that in the age of so much resource and, and, and so much incredible teaching, incredible um, resources, we need to still be careful that we just don't willingly accept everything that says Jesus or everything that says gospel, but that we test the truth, that we test the words according to what Paul's going to tell us here in verse 8 and 9. He's going to lay out for us essentially a plumb line for how to judge truth claims. And this is important because there's two ways that we can look at this. There's truth claims that come externally to us. This is teachers preachers, writers, entertainers, celebrities. These are, these are they're truth claims that are being made every single day to us, right? And we need some sort of plumb line in order to judge what is true and what is not. But then there's also internal claims that are coming. So this may be our feelings. This may be our urges. This may be our experiences that are telling us this is true about life. This is true about you. And don't we need a plumb line to know, like, what is true, what is not? Well, here, listen to what Paul says here in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What is the plumb line? What is the standard that we judge all truth claims by. The gospel that he and all the other capital A apostles received from Christ taught, which would mean this letter and the rest 
of Scripture. Essentially, it's the gospel revealed to us in Scripture. The gospel that we believe has never been added to, does not need to be added to, it was completed with the book of Revelation. There's not another gospel. There's not another testament. But Paul says, if any of us, if, you know, as, as we have said before, if we or an angel from heaven, notice how he even includes himself in that. Paul's kind of saying, hey, even if I change my mind about what the gospel is in a month, or in a year, and I come back and I said, I've had a fresh revelation. He said, throw me out and throw the bathwater out too. Like all of it, just get rid of it. Let it be accursed because that gospel is not true. The scriptures delivered to us is our plumb line for determining what is true. So this means no matter how charismatic a certain person may be or how uplifting a certain teaching may feel, the gospel is our measure of truth. And we have to know this. And I mean, this is one of the reasons that, you know, I know Pastor Nate encourages us almost weekly to be in the word, to get in the word so the word gets in us. Because as the word gets in us, you know what starts to happen is we start to feel, we start to understand when something just doesn't sit right, right? We start to recognize a counterfeit. We start to see and go, I don't know about that meme. I don't know about that little saying. It seems cool, but there's something that's not fully there. And we start to judge and we start to gauge the truth and the trustworthiness of those things according to what God has declared in Scripture. As someone has said, we don't judge the Bible by our feelings or convictions. We judge our experiences by the Bible. He gives this judgment for those that would peddle this false gospel or are moving away from the true gospel. He says, let them be accursed. He repeats it twice in case we were thinking, well, Paul, what? okay, twice. Okay, you really meant to say that. Now, where's the love, Paul? Like, what's the deal? Well, to Paul, getting the gospel right is a matter of eternal importance. It's a matter of life and death. And as we close our time tonight, I, I want to do one last thing, and I want to compare one aspect of this false gospel to the true gospel as revealed in our passage, because I think as we move along this, this letter, we're going to be able to see this over and over again, how the gospel isn't just what gets us into the door of the Christian life, but it really is the path that we are to continue to walk on and return to on a daily basis in order to know who we are in Christ. For any of us believers who have been walking with Christ for years and years, decades and decades, to think that we ever graduate from an understanding of the gospel, man, I think the book of Galatians is going to tell us something different because it's understanding deeply God's grace that I believe does transform us and frees us to live the life that God would want us to live. So, look at verse 6 once again as, as we compare, contrast in our closing. Verse 6 says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Here's one aspect of the false gospel. It turns us away from pursuing God and the grace found in Jesus. It turns us away from pursuing God and the grace found in Jesus. 
Now, what do we turn to instead? If we're not pursuing God and his goal and his mission for our lives, and we're not pursuing his grace, what would be something that we would be pursuing? Oftentimes, unfortunately, we turn to another way of finding acceptance and value, and that's through performance. It's through following a list of rules and regulations in order to feel as though we've been accepted. And I think it goes back to a false narrative that we've been picked up, uh, we've, been had, we've had from our beginning as, as kids, really, right? This idea that we know that we are accepted when we do good. You know, I think of my six-year-old and almost two-year-old. And as a parent, you're in this interesting kind of place because part of my job is to teach my boys right and wrong. And I want to encourage them when they make good decisions. I want to celebrate that with them. I want to rejoice with them. You did it. Awesome. Good job. Way to go. In fact, it's so fun right now. Um, one of the things that we've been teaching our six-year-old is, you know, he's bigger than his brother. His brother's almost two. And so oftentimes, Cannon, my six-year-old, will be running through the house doing something. And Crew's just wanting to to cruise along with them, and crew will maybe get knocked over or something like that. And we're teaching Canon, like, the, the right thing to do is to say, you know, are you okay to bend down and, you know, to make sure he's all right, pick him up, you know, kind of a thing. And so we've had to encourage this in him over and over again, and he's gotten it. He's like, yeah, it's there. So much so that crew now is, like, asking, are you okay? Like, all the time. I was in the kitchen and I was doing dishes the other day because I just love to serve my wife and my family. And I, uh, I, was, I was putting, you know, like a pot or pan away and, you know, made a loud sound. And then Kruby from the living room goes, you okay? It's just so great. I'm like, that's awesome. So good. So encouraging. All right. I'm, I'm good, son. I'm good. I'm just tearing up a little bit, but I'm okay. But... You know, so there's times where you want to celebrate that. You want to encourage that. But then when they make a bad decision, you know, we don't turn our eyes. We don't, you know, look away. We, we have to address those things, and we have to help them work through that and disciple them in that. I don't know. As a parent, you know, I think the challenge is making sure that our kids know that their actions are what's being evaluated and not our love and our acceptance of them. <laughs> The world, though, reinforces this performance-based acceptance, doesn't it? I mean, as early as school, we have grades, we have tests, we have score charts. In sports, we have trophies, we, you know, have all of these standings, we have these awards. And in our careers, even, there's promotions and there's bonuses and there's things that just can, can tend to reinforce that our acceptance and our value is based off of these external talents and abilities that we have. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because I think often what happens is we project the same idea of I'm accepted because of what I do onto the gospel and onto God himself. That I am good with God. I have God's favor. I feel loved because I'm doing the right things. James Bryan Smith in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, he talks about how this narrative of acceptance through performance has seeped into our lives. He talks about how much it can even work into our understanding how to operate in the Christian life. 
says, we often think that in order to get God to love us and accept us, we need to go to church, read our Bible, give some money, serve in a ministry, help the poor. Oh, and God doesn't want me to sin, or at least he wants me to keep it to a minimum. <laughs> he goes on to say that the system, also known as legalism, is just a way that we can try and control how God feels about us. Isn't that interesting? If I do things on this list, then God will approve of me. And if I avoid doing the really bad things, then God must love me. This legalism or this false gospel narrative of attempting to earn God's love through our actions or earn his favor by avoiding certain sins ends up becoming almost like a sort of superstition. He says in the book, in the end, legalism is a type of superstition, not unlike avoiding black cats and ladders. We're drawn to superstitious and legalistic behaviors because they provide a sense of control in an otherwise chaotic world. But God's favor is not earned by what we do any more than good luck is found in a rabbit's foot. You see, I think why grace can be so hard for some people is because it really is out of our control. It really is a gift. And it's so humbling that you just have to receive God's grace and receive his love. And this is the crux of Paul's definition of the true gospel here. He says, you've deserted him. Not just an idea, not just a doctrine, not just a theology. You've deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ. Because what religion and man-made systems of rules and regulations will do, it will lead you away from a thriving, growing relationship with Jesus. And it will lead you into stale, dry religion. Paul says, don't desert him who called you in the grace of Christ. The true gospel is that we aren't accepted because of what we do, but because of what God has done for us. And this is good news because it means anyone can come to Jesus. No matter where you are coming from, no matter what you have done, no matter the shame or the guilt that you carry in tonight, it is not too much for Jesus. Religion will say these people are in and these people are out. The gospel says Jesus was made an outcast so that we, whoever believes, could be saved. In fact, Matthew 9, I close with this. It's the story of Matthew, the tax collector, being called by Jesus. He's one of my favorite apostles for obvious reasons. Matthew was sitting at a tax booth. Jesus comes along and he says, follow me. It says Matthew gets up and follows him. So quick, so immediate, so final. He gets up and he follows after Jesus. And it says that then they were sitting with his disciples and with other tax collectors and sinners having a meal. And the Pharisees, and we're going to learn about these guys a little bit more next week and beyond. You just need to know the Pharisees, they're not fair, you see. That's the, the main thing you need to get to know. Though They were all about rules. They were all about regulations. And uh, they saw Jesus, and they questioned what he was doing. And this is what they said. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, this is what Jesus says. It's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners. Isn't that amazing? You see, this understanding of the gospel of grace, this is not a Pauline-only gospel. This is the, the God that Jesus revealed to us in the Scripture. The good news is that all of us have a chance because of Him. Author and speaker Brennan Manning, who's now with the Lord, speaking about this passage, says, Here's the revelation bright as the evening star. Jesus comes for sinners, for those as outcast as tax collectors, and for those caught up in squalid choices and failed dreams. He comes for corporate executives, street people, superstars, farmers, hookers, and addicts. Every Christian generation tried to dim the blinding brightness of its measuring because the gospel seems too good to be true. The good news is that it is true. It's true for us. And the person that thinks they're accepted by following rules and regulations, that will produce, if you follow them, only pride because you look down on every el everybody else who's not achieving. Or it will crush you with anxiety because you will not be able to live up to the standards. The true gospel brings freedom from that type of system. And that is why Paul would say, stand therefore in freedom because you are free in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.